The master said, while a person's father is still alive, observe his attentions. After his father passes away, observe the person's actions. If for three years he does not revise the ways of his late father, this person may be called a filial son. This is Analects 1.11. Uh, there's an important thing to understand as background before you can really understand the meaning of this. There's a couple of things actually. One is that the mourning period for a son is three years or according to the ancient Chinese calendar, 25 months uh, according to some sources. And the second thing that's important to understand is that uh, family life back then was a patriarchal um, clan kind of situation. So uh, when you hear the word patriarchy being used today, it's uh, people are using it, particularly feminists, in a way that um, doesn't really actually make historical sense. So uh feminists will say the word patriarchy to mean any kind of situation where men have uh, power over women either by um, the rules uh you know whether we're talking talking about laws or just customs so either by rules or simply that there are more men in positions of power uh i could talk about how this is a misusage of language is a very different thing than uh, explicitly men are supposed to be in control and only men versus a situation where it just happens that more men are in position of high power than women. Um, you know, th <clears throat> there are certain situations, obviously, where uh, men have advantage. And uh, without going into too much detail. They have the advantage because of some reason, um, some differences between most men and most women. And so you just have simply more male achievement in that field. That, that, that shouldn't mean that um, it's the same situation as where you say only men can have positions, high positions in this situation. So anyways, but I'm getting a little off, off topic here. Um, when we're talking about a patriarchal clan society, what this means is some variation of a, a large family that isn't just the what we call the, you know, atomistic or nuclear family. We're talking about a family that is not just mother, father, and children, but more of an extended family. And uh, the leader of this is a patriarch. This is uh, this could be like a grandfather. And um, and it's usually tied to some sort of estate, property, land that the family resides on. And uh, this clan, it works as almost its own community with its own rules, its own leadership, and even punishments. There's a wonderful book called Family and Civilization. It's by a sociologist looking throughout history at uh, many different types of families, and um, according to him, uh, so the author is 
Carl Zimmerman, spelled with a C C A R L E. Uh, so Carl Zimmerman is the author of this book, Family and Civilization, where you'll find a very long explanation, exploration of the subject. But according to him, there are three types of families, the trustee, the domestic, and the atomistic. Today, we live in the atomistic, uh, but the trustee and clan families are more larger families, vibrant families, and ones that have more, um, um, uh, essentially, power, really. Um, the atomistic family exists because the state the government is um, basically very powerful and the reality about power is that um, this is not like wealth uh, you can't increase uh, increase it so if somebody has more power by by nature other people have less power within human society so um, there's there's some kind of optimal mean between one person having all the power and nobody having much power. There's some proper balance between these two extremes somewhere in the middle. Uh, obviously not necessarily right in the middle, but somewhere in the middle. And in um, almost every Confucian dynasty, you don't have atomistic families being the dominant family type, the most popular family type in the society. It's um, trustee, which I refer to as clan, uh, or domestic. And so when you have um, the patriarchal clan society, even though you are an adult, even though you're, say, uh, 25 years old or 18 years old, or back then they considered you an adult, pretty much when you were 15, um, this is because they were more attuned to biology and nature, as I've said before. But regardless of your age, uh, if you have a father, um, he's the one who is exercising, is exercising leadership over the clan, over the family, um, in the same, similar way that a king exercises leadership over the country. So the king is father to the country, the patriarch to, to the country, and the say uh, grandfather and all this might be uh, acting as sort of the king of the clan, um, the the patriarch of the family. So as a result, there are some rules that are established as sort of a way, and uh, everybody, male or female, um, is following this this way within the clan. This also, by the way, explains why in uh, dynastic China and other kinds of situations, not just in the, the uh, in East Asia, but um, if you're thinking about, say, the the Romans, um, sometimes what happens is uh, somebody tries to overthrow the emperor, and um, what ends up happening is that it's not just a few people who are executed for treason; it's um, all the males within that family and this might seem harsh and this might seem overly uh, retributive but in those times there's a sort of a logic to it as ruthless and cold as you might consider it there's a logic because it would be very difficult to pull off overthrowing the emperor if all of your 
male family members weren't somehow in on it. So when one, when the leader of that family, that clan is found to be uh, guilty of treason, um, it can't just be him. It has to be other members, other male members of his clan. So um, you can go into some history yourself and, and take a look at exactly how this unfolds, but that's one way of understanding why the punishments worked that way back then. So while the father is alive, um, his ways are also the son's ways. And so the filial son generally follows the ways of his father. Now, if you ask certain Confucian scholars or philosophers, like for example, Sunzu repeats that a son should, um, you should follow Yi, not your father, and you should follow the Tao, not your Lord. So um, Confucianism, contrary to stereotype, is not just there to uphold the authority structure. It is not there. There are things that are import, more important than that. Now, how and where and when you exercise resistance or or you can call it disobedience, whatever you want to call that, um, whatever you want to call a refusal to just simply follow orders and commands, uh, that specifically is up to debate within um, communities of Rue scholars, Confucian scholars. So some people um, are ready to change a dynasty. Other people will die for the dynasty. If you look at the Joseon dynasty, this question weighs very heavily um, in everybody's hearts at the uh, right before the beginning of the Joseon dynasty, you know, in the dying days of the Goryeo dynasty. So if you want to look into Korean history, um, or if you just want to um, watch some historical, what are called historical dramas, uh, then um, you can you can take a look at that. Uh, they're not most of them are not very historically accurate, um, unfortunately. But one thing that they can kind of help with is uh, get a glimpse into sort of. Um, uh, a little bit of the mentality, you know. So um, there's this one, um, there's this one historical drama about Sejong, uh, who's a you know, who is the uh, the king who invented the alphabet that Korea uses today, and it's phonetic. Um, to my knowledge, phonetic alphabets are extremely rare in human history. I only know of really the Latin one other than the, the quote-unquote Korean one. And uh, he invented this. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't one of those things where he just simply hired a committee to create it. He, he really invented it uh, alongside a few other scholars who are who were talented in linguistics as well, but he um, really is, is is the inventor of this language. And it's really a, a very intuitive uh, alphabet. If you look at the shapes of the consonants and the vowels, it's intuitive because they kind of mimic 
uh, in a very intuitive way the shape of your mouth or tongue and or throat as you're trying to make these vowel sounds and consonant sounds. Uh, so you can really easily pick this language up. You can eat overnight. You can learn how to write Korean if you already know how to speak it. It's really incredible. But uh, anyways, if you watch this, um, it's, a lot of it's not really historically accurate, but at the same time, you can get an appreciation for what it's like to live under a king's rule, um, particularly a good king. And you can see uh, the amount of sacrifice that they and the, the love they really have for their subjects, even imperfect kings. Um, I don't think anybody would argue that Sejong's father, King Tejong, was a um, uh, less than perfect king. But you can still see a, a lot of this concern and care um, for people, even when uh, the king's reigns are far from perfect. So you can really see that. And uh, again, even though the details are not great, um, you can gain a understanding from this kind of fiction. Okay, so um, if we look at, if we go back to here, and uh, we we understand that after a um, you know when when your when your father is alive, you know you follow his ways, and this makes more sense because uh, back then you didn't just go when you become an adult go off to live your, on your own in your own apartment or home, you know, with your, and maybe get married um, and then have children. And then you only see, you know, your father, AKA your children's grandfather from time to time. This is actually not how it worked. Back then everybody lived together in the same land and uh, there's more of a community within the family. And you might want to think about which one is actually healthier, which one is actually better. Um, now every community needs leaders and every community needs rules so if you've got if you're living in the same land with your your siblings your brothers and they have their children wives and children and you know there's got to be somebody to set some basic rules to follow and so forth okay now after the father passes away um confucius is saying observe the person's actions right now he says, he explains it further, if for three years he does not revise the ways of his late father, he may be called a filial son. So the three years, of course, coincides uh, with the three years of mourning. So he, why, is it, why, why is there three years of mourning? Because, if you, because the, the relationship between a son and the father is such that... Uh, it's it's a unique relationship and a very intimate. It's a very um, deep relationship. Even if you don't have a good relationship with your father, um, even if you feel like you're not much like your father or anything like your father, it doesn't really matter. It's a relationship that you're simply born into, and you can't help but feel strongly about. Even if you've never met your father before, there's or he, if he passes away early, like um, in the case of Mencius and, and Confucius, uh, from what we know, their fathers passed away very early. And uh, you, there's, there's always going to be something kind of missing from your heart um, when somebody you love 
passes away, and this is especially true for one's father. I've seen men who have lost their father relatively early in life, and they're never the same again. And in, any, in, in all these cases, they did not go through the three years of mourning. I'm not saying that going through three years of mourning will make it so that they're happy again like they were before their father passed away. I'm not saying that. But when I see these people, uh, their fathers passed away, they haven't properly mourned for them. There's this kind of deep unhappiness and almost anger at the world uh, that they have. And it, it, it's not properly expressed. And one of the most important functions of ritual is to properly express human emotions so that they are expressed well, profoundly, beautifully, meaningfully. So when your father passes away and you just bury the person and you try to go to work the next day or in a week even, that's not okay. That's not acceptable. The mourning period involves a lot of things. The mourning period involves um, some, some basic things that are common um, in all dynasties is uh, not eating meat for three years. Although um, there's sometimes men just talks about one person that what, you know, he, he did eat meat, but it was because of meat was that particular meat um, reminded him of happy times with his father. Okay. So, you know, there could always be exceptions, but um, generally uh, the son does not eat meat. Uh, the son also refrains from um, sexual relations during this time. Um, during this 25 month period and uh, there's other things like uh, building a hut next to the grave um, the grave site um, so there's there's a number of things that go into uh, many um, mourning period ways of life um, in order to mourn now again this this depends the exact details depend on from dynasty to dynasty there's a discussion to be had about what should a modern person do given um in a sense there are certain minor limitations and there are certain things we, that we learn from the past for example uh going back to the early joseon king sejong's own son he did the morning ceremony and he became very weak from it meat is very healthy uh, to eat it's very something that really um can heal your body and uh actually this is actually one reason why sejong uh, died early he was diabetic and he, he grew weak and he was supposed to eat some meat or drink some kind of broth um, that was recommended by the doctors but he was vegetarian by this point and vegetarianism is not really too good if you're a diabetic um, and, and Sejong went blind, um, and, uh, and this is while he was uh, pushing forward with his creation and implementation of the alphabet, um, which had some uh, some degree of political resistance to that idea of implementing it. Um, uh, this this will be covered more thoroughly in a, in a different kind of discussion. But uh, he really sacrificed his health for his people. Um, this is this is what this is what kings do. This is what fathers do. 
Um, one thing that people don't understand is the leaders that you have that you've elected, <laughs> uh, they don't, you haven't seen what virtuous leadership is. You really haven't because you haven't studied history. You get told about a lot of famous tyrants. I believe, honestly, this is a kind of um, post-enlightenment propaganda. Uh, you know, in other words, enlightenment is very much against monarchy and uh, it, it lauds certain other things. And one way to convince the population to, to change politically and accept that change is to uh, demonize people who abide by a different way of life, a different way of leadership. And so monarchy is vilified these days. But if you really understood it, most kings are not bad leaders. There are very few tyrants in history. And even when things are bad, it's usually because a king is weak. Um, again, this is probably, you know, deserves another one, a full discussion in and of its own. But, um, you know, when, when we go back to what happens here with Sejong's passing, his uh, crown prince becomes king, but he needs to go through the mourning period and he dies um, either during it or shortly after. And, uh, uh, you know, he's his body's a weakened state and this throws the kingdom into a lot of political chaos. Um, and this very gold, this golden age of King Sejong's reign um, that starts with King Sejong's reign um, and the that uh, is that kind of perf that kind of idealism is cut kind of short because um, it's cut it's short it's cut short because uh, after the crown prince becomes king um, now this is up to Sejong's grandson who is way too young to rule and as I've said before. Uh, sometimes what happens when um, the the king is too young to rule, the uncle rules instead. So Sejong's second-born son is ruling. But in order to solidify his power, uh, this results in a lot of uh, people dying, including the um, the heir to the throne. So the mourning period. Um, and obviously, most people can't afford to build a hut next to where their father is buried because these cemeteries are are owned by somebody else. Essentially, you're not going to just build a hut there and live there. So there's there's all sorts of adjustments that, that uh, need to be made. So again, that's a just just a full discussion of that should be made some other time. But part of the morning is not just following the the, the ritual, but part of the morning is also to have that mentality of mourning um, in order to fully express out your sadness. Otherwise, that can really mess you up spiritually and emotionally and psychologically into the rest of your life. So um, because of this kind of feeling that you have at the time, you are reluctant to change the ways of your father. This is not like the Lion King where Simba says, I can't wait to, to be a king. That was an extremely filial, unfilial mentality. And, you know, he's a child when he sings it. Um, and once his father does die, uh, well, um, then reality hits. 
So if if your father dies, you're re reluctant to change things. You know, you're not going to be like, oh, well, he's finally gone, and I'm going to do things my own way. That's not a um, that's not a, a feeling that really comes from the heart. That's not a Ren kind of feeling. So that's why if you want to see if somebody is a filial son, uh, you can go see after his father passes, back then at least, is he still following the, the same customs that his father followed? Is he still following the same customs? Um, it, let me make uh, one analogy here. Uh, let's kind of switch the perspective. Uh, some parents are, uh, tragically, they lose their child before their children become adults. And if you look at those people's houses, right, um, imagine if you saw a, a parent, right, the moment, like, you know, a week after the child passes, they change the room into a recreation room or a den. Well, you'd actually be horrified. You'd actually start to think, you start to ask the question, did the parents kill the child? Because of how inhumane that is, right? How lacking in feeling, natural feeling that is. So what we do find is that when parents tragically lose their children, they keep that room almost exactly the same. Maybe they tidy it up, but it's, it becomes a kind of a shrine to the deceased child. And that's a human, that's a natural feeling. And you know that those are loving parents when you see that. So it's the same thing here. If, if, if you see this son and he's just changing um, his ways, especially if they're not have nothing to do with what's righteous, right? He's just changing the ways just because he can, uh, just because he wants to live the way he wants to live. Um, that's not a filial son. And the sooner he starts to that change, you know how much lacking in love, uh, lacking filial love he has for his father. So uh, that's that's. 1.11 it's a little difficult to understand these days because things have changed so so much people don't do mourning periods uh, and uh, people do not um, live with their fathers late into adulthood either um, and so there are no you know patterns of behavior that they you know they would follow closely to their father. So uh, now that you know the historical background, uh, you can understand 1.11.